Good morning. So good to see each one of you uh, with us this morning. Uh, we are in the middle of our series on Psalms, and we are traditionally, the last couple of weeks, we have just been going through a psalm and just kind of telling you what the psalm means. This week, we're going to take a slight break from that, and we're going to look at a theme that you find throughout the psalms. Uh, delight in God. The, uh, the, the psalmist's longing, uh, their love for God. It's something that you, you just kind of, after you read the whole book, you kind of walk away from the book of Psalms going, wow, these guys really longed for God. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons, but one of the things that we're talking about this morning is they don't have, at least the Old Testament guys, didn't have a really strong view of the afterlife. They didn't have a very well-formed view, which is kind of odd for us because I mean, you, you talk about the Christian hope to anyone living on this side of the cross, and they're going to tell you that it's, it's heaven, right? I don't know that the Old Testament writers would have given you the same answer. They don't seem to have a very well-formed view of what happened after you die. Let me give you a couple of examples. You heard the verse James read for you this morning. Job obviously has this hope for um, what happens after he dies. Uh, he lives around the time of Abraham, so he is an incredibly ancient source, an incredibly ancient uh, person. He apparently has some sort of view of an afterlife. He believes that there's going to be an existence after his death here. Abraham, around the same time period, apparently has similar view. Listen to what he says in Hebrews 11. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And so he is looking for heaven. He's looking for a peaceful afterlife, right? So that thought does exist in the Old Testament, but it's certainly not the most prevalent thought in the Old Testament. When you were to ask Job or Abraham or even Daniel, um, King David, what happens after you die? Most of the time, they would have talked about a place they knew as Sheol. Now, this place is kind of shrouded in question marks for us. We don't know a ton about this place, and they don't talk about it very often. This word's used something like 63 times in the Old Testament. What happened after you died is not a topic that they seem to be that interested in. Um, for whatever reason, they don't talk about it very much. So I understand that's kind of interesting for us living on this side of the cross. Like that's, that's our motivation. That's why we've made the sacrifices that we make. That's why we live the life that we currently live, right? Because of the promise of heaven. These guys didn't, didn't have that, at least that secure of a promise. Listen to how they describe Sheol. We're not going to read these. We'll read a verses, especially where they depart from uh, hell. This place is not hell. It's different. Um, it's also heaven. So be aware of that. Um, Job 10 tells us that this is a place of darkness. It is as far from God as possible. You see the verses there with Job 11 and Psalm 139 and Amos. Um, but God is still there. So grab your Bibles and turn to one, uh, Psalm 139. 
Psalm 139. This one is uh, one of the places where uh, Sheol diverges from hell. Most of the time, uh, Sheol is referred to uh, in one of two ways. Either Either the Hebrew word is just turned into our English word, Sheol, and that's the way they deal with it. They don't know kind of what to do with this word. Or they translate it, the grave. Um, so it, it's, kind of, it's kind of an amorphous topic. They don't, they don't really know what to do with it. Um, so it is what happens after they died. Um, but it's not exactly how we would view uh, what happens after we they didn't. They just didn't have a fully formed view of it yet. God had not let them in on um, what this afterlife was going to look like, I guess. So Psalm 139 verse 8 tells us a little bit more about this. Uh, The psalmist says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. Of course he's there. He's in heaven, right? That's where he lives. Of course he's there. Uh, But also the second part of verse 8, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And so the psalmist is kind of saying, uh, he wants to draw a contrast here. If I go as far as I can go that way, into heaven, you're there, Lord. And if I go as far as I can this way, you're, you're still there. Which is interesting on a couple of different levels. But the thing that we're trying to get to today is he's not in hell. That's one of the things that makes hell so catastrophic for us is that it's separation from God. You see that in Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9. But he is in Sheol. And so... This place is, is, is odd, and it deserves much more study than we can give it today. But just a couple more things uh, to kind of describe this place, the Jewish concept of what an afterlife looked like for you. You see a couple more verses. Uh, Job 14 tells us that most of what they thought you did there was sleep. Uh, it's a place of silence, Psalm 115. Uh, and even God can rescue you from this place. Psalm 49 tells us that uh, if you've... If you're interested in more study on this, take a snapshot of these verses and get you a good Bible dictionary and, and run through what this place would have looked like, uh, at least in their estimation. But uh, Psalm 49, verse 15, he says, But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So you can be rescued from Sheol. Now, the difference between that and hell is obvious, right? You cannot be rescued from hell. It is eternal punishment. So Sheol is a very interesting place. But what I want you to to get across to you today is they don't have just a fully formed view of what happens after you die. But what they did grab a hold of was it's not really that great a place. Sheol, it's not really a place you want to go to. It's It's not a vacation spot. It's not something you would look forward to going to. It's certainly not a place you would make sacrifices to be able to go to, right? Which makes their next comments kind of interesting. You help me with a slide, Drew? There you go. Um, Throughout the Psalms, these guys talk about a huge delight in God. Listen to Psalm 42. You're familiar with it. We sing a psalm about this, as a matter of fact. He says, As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? David couches his need, and, and need is an appropriate word there. 
He couches his need for God in these poetic terms. But if you look beneath what he's actually saying, he's saying God is a necessity. His presence in my life is like water. What happens if you don't go a couple days without water? You start feeling bad, right? Uh, You get headaches, your stomach starts hurting. What happens if you go a little bit longer without water? Stuff starts breaking down, doesn't it? Water is a necessity for us. David says, God's presence in my life is just as much a necessity as water. Listen to what else he says. Psalm 65, he says, Blessed is the one who you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. The psalmist is essentially saying, you just won the lottery. God has chosen you, brought you close to himself, and now you get to live in his presence. How fortunate are you. You've been blessed among over all people. This is, this is crazy what's happened to you. You get to live in God's presence. Wow. You know, it's almost like our minds can't, can't grab a hold of that concept. These guys delight in God. They need His presence in their lives. Listen to Psalm 84, verse 10. The psalmist says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. He says, One day in your presence, God, is better than an eternity outside of it. I would rather live in a box at the gate of your kingdom than live in a mansion for eternity outside of your presence. These are just three small captions, small snapshots of the psalmist's longing for God. They needed to be near Him. It's kind of interesting that they had that need without the promise of heaven, right? I think that's interesting. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is another passage that you need to read through this week. Uh, if you haven't already read through it, I put some notes on Facebook uh, from, from, uh, from my iPad. Put some notes on the side there. But read through, this, read through this, this story. So this is when the ark comes back to Jerusalem. It's been sitting in some guy's house for 20 years. It hasn't been lost. They lost it back in 1 Samuel chapter 4 to the Philistines, right? In a battle, the Philistines beat them up and took the ark. And it, the ark did a tour around some of the Philistine cities. You remember the stories? God destroyed those Philistine cities basically from the inside out, made a mockery of their gods, gave boils to their people and stuff, um, until the Philistines finally were like, we're, we're going to give the ark back. You guys can have it. And they set it down at the... Uh, at the the entrance to Israel's kingdom. Um, some Israelites came, they got it, and they took it to this guy's house. And that's where it's been for the last two decades. Finally, David has come into power in Jerusalem, and he's ready to bring the ark back. And so he goes and he gets the ark, but he brings with him 30,000 dancers. Isn't that amazing? 30, th- he commissions, uh, I think he calls them uh, like these are the fit, the beautiful people. So he goes out and he, he finds these, these nice looking guys, uh, these nice looking young men. And he says, all right, you're a dancer. 
And he gets 30,000 of them. And these guys are, are having this huge celebration. And they're dancing and singing and celebrating as the ark goes from this guy's house up to Jerusalem. But apparently at some point it hits a bump. And Uzzah reaches out and he grabs the Ark of the Covenant because it's about to tip over, right? So he reaches up and he grabs it and the Lord strikes him dead, right? They weren't carrying the Ark correctly and there's some stuff there that we need to talk about, but we just don't have time. But so David stops the parade, stops the celebration. He kind of says, well, now what do we do? I can't bring it up to, to Jerusalem because this thing is dangerous, that's why it's been sitting in the guy's house for 20 years, because the Philistines thought it was too dangerous to keep in their land. So they gave it back to Israel, and the Israelites, whose God lives between the cherubim, the one that the, 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 the being that makes the ark dangerous, well, it's just too dangerous for us to be around it too. So they put it in this guy's extra bedroom, I guess. Um, and that's where it stayed for 20 years until David finally brings it out. But now it's reached out and, and killed someone, Uzzah. Um, and so he says, well, now what are we going to do? He thinks for a little bit and he finally comes to this conclusion. He's going he's to give it to a guy. He's going to let it stay in this guy's house. Um, this guy's a Philistine. It's, it's a different guy. But this guy's a Philistine, but he lives near Jerusalem. There's some interesting stuff going on there, too. Um, but he leaves it in that guy's house for about three months until he can figure out what to do. So three months passes. David gets the dancers back. Uh, he goes and they actually carry the ark correctly this time. Uh, and so go through and read Second Samuel 6 and look for the celebrations that you find in this passage because God's presence is coming back to Jerusalem. He's been gone from the holy city, what they would view as the holy city, for 20 years. Finally, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, he's coming back. That is a, an event that is, I mean, the highlight of David's generation. This is probably the best thing that's happened in the last 20 to 40 years to the nation of Israel. This is an event worth celebrating, right? So they pull out all the stops. You go back through and read 2 Samuel 6, you'll see every six steps, which is about the side uh, from, from one end of our stage here to the other, is about six steps. Every six steps, they would stop and David would sacrifice two, two animals. Every six steps, they would make two sacrifices. This journey from this guy's house to Jerusalem where the, the ark finally landed up, would have taken all day. I don't know how many steps it took. I bet David remembers. But I don't know how far a distance that is. But it would have at least taken several hours because of all the, the ceremony and the pomp and the celebration that was going through Israel because God's presence was finally coming home. These guys, the Old Testament writers, the Old Testament people had this huge love Huge need, longing is the best word, a yearning for God. But they didn't know a whole lot about heaven. Let me give you a couple of illustrations here to just try to get us into the mind frame of where they're sitting 
I, w- I want us to try to see where they're coming from. I'm going to give you a couple of illustrations, but I want to head this off by saying we take God's presence fairly frivolously, don't we? We have grace, right? Everyone on this side of the cross is familiar with God's grace. It's incredible, right? It covers over all my stupidity, all my ignorance, all the crazy things that I did when I was, un, when I was thoughtless and, and um, hurtful and sinful. It covers over all those things, right? And that's amazing. What I need to understand is each and every one of those things is an offense to God is a slap in his face. You ever been slapped in the face by anybody? Has anybody ever slapped you in your face? Nobody's ever slapped me in my face. If it's ever happened to you, how many times would you allow that to happen before you broke relationship with that person, before you were like, no, no, you're not coming around me anymore. You're just slapping me for no reason. Just offending, uh, offense on top of offense on top of offense. I don't need to be in a relationship with you like that. It's crazy. Every ignorant sin, every willful sin, every sin, whether we recognize it or not, is an offense to God. It's a slap in His face, a spit in His face. We need to walk a line here between relying wholeheartedly on grace. It's phenomenal, right? It's our only hope of heaven. So we walk a line between completely relying on His grace while at the same time being so conscious of not wanting to offend Him. Let me give you a couple of examples here. Um, Let me give you a personal story first. This is kind of funny, scary. Um, you ever woke up and your leg is burning and it's numb at the same time? So my left leg, a couple of days ago, I woke up and it was burning. Like, it woke me up. Kelly said I was crying in my sleep. It hurt so bad. And I got up and I thought, what in the world is happening? And it was like I had sat on my foot for like the last couple hours, but it was my leg. I thought, what in the world? That's weird. And I walked it off and I was okay. The next night I did it again. I was like, oh, what is this? So I went to the doctor, right? And they're like, oh, we're going we're gonna to run some labs. So I've never had lab work done. I'm 38 this year. I've never had lab work done. So they're like, okay. They did the lab work, and they were like, okay, we'll send that off and see what happens. It did it again the next night. I thought, this is crazy. What if it's a blood clot or something? 38, 38-year-olds don't get blood clots, do we? I don't know. So I go to the doctor at uh, urgent care, and I start telling him, and he has this really confused look on his face, and you're like, what's going on? He sends me off for an ultrasound on my leg. <laughs> Turns out it's not a blood clot. It's probably just a uh, pinched nerve. Anyhow, assuming you had a serious health situation going on, you went to the doctor and they said, listen, you, you've, you've got cancer. Um, and, and it's serious. And uh, we're going to do some chemo. We're going to do some radiation. And you need to stay on top of this. Like this is, this is a pretty big deal. You go home and you tell your spouse and you say, well, this is what they told me to do, but I'm, I'm kind of going to really worry about the, the chemo. 
I'm going to go, but I'm going to go like it maybe every other time. Uh, I hear that stuff's pretty bad. Um, and, and the radiation, I'm going to do that maybe every, every third or fourth time. I'll, I'll do that, but I'm not going to take it that seriously. Would you do that? Of course not. This is your life at stake, right? This is a very serious situation. What if, um, what if you had a leaky roof? Um, when Kelly and I lived in Nashville, we had, um, we had this house there. And we walk in one day, and there's a puddle on the floor. Like, hmm, what's going on? And uh, so we, uh, we look up, and sure enough, it's coming from the roof. So you know what we did? We just waited a month or so and, uh, and hoped it would fix itself. What do you think? Is that what you do? Of course not. You call the contractor and you're like, hey, I need to get my roof fixed before it destroys my entire house, right? These things are serious and we take them very seriously. We move on them very quickly, right? We take care of it. I think because of our culture, maybe, we have viewed sin as something that's not as dangerous as it really is. Each and every sin is an offense against God. It's a slap in His face, a spit in His face. And while grace covers these things, covers my sin, I ought to be very aware of the offense I've caused. You see the, the line we, we try to walk there? You would take care of the cancer diagnosis. You would take, take care of the leaky roof very quickly, right? You, you, don't, you don't play with those kind of things because they're serious. Sin is so much more serious than any of those things. It's our worst problem. Sometimes we play with it, don't we? We kind of view, oh, well, this, this, this thing is, it's not that bad. You know, I'm not as bad as this person over there. I haven't done this, you know. This is just something that, that I did, you know. It's an offense against God. Now, all the psalmists, all the Old Testament writers and people longed to be in God's presence. In fact, when God's presence was taken from King Saul... It drove him insane, right? This is the reliance that they had on his presence. Sometimes we're so focused on heaven and the grace that God has that's going to get us there, we forget about his presence being very close to us and the things that I do that might push him away. We need to be very aware of what I do to push God away. We need to delight in God. Just like the, the Old Testament uh, psalmist did. It's something that you find in the book of Psalms. This huge delight, long yearning for God. That needs to be just as present in our lives as it did, as it was in theirs. We need to long for His presence in our lives and work so that He stays in our lives while at the same time relying on ever-present grace to take up our slack. This morning, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, you need to make that right. The sins that, that you have are still on your record. He's still holding you accountable for those things. But the good news is 
You don't have to be accountable for those things. You can be baptized in His blood and have those sins washed away. Maybe you've already made that decision this morning. You just need the prayers of the church to be who God wants you to be. If you have any need this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing?